Diving Intellectuals and Elevated Garbage Podcast. And finally, my mental illnesses are at bay, at least long enough for me to record episode two. And the cinematic universe that I will just kind of dive headfirst into is the Mission Impossible franchise. Namely, I think really it's just Tom Cruise and his action movies canon like I I don't know cancel me if you've been following me since 2021 it's been nice uh knowing you um and if this is your first time ever hearing the sound of my voice and you're already hearing that I'm aligning myself with Tom Cruise um hello and goodbye but uh I know I've sprinkled this enough across my Instagram. Um, but yes, I am a relatively of sound mind, 37 year old Haitian queer woman. And I am obsessed with Tom Cruise in his action film genre. Um, what started out as a lobotomy of choice turned into a guilty pleasure that I no longer wish to, you know, uh, admit kind of cautiously or just, you know, read the room to see if if I'm going to be accepted or if I say this, will I be immediately canceled? I genuinely and unironically, unironically love, like he's in his bag. Like this man knows what he's doing. He wouldn't, um, he wouldn't sacrifice court mandated visitation with his kids for not a good reason. And when I've consumed all that garbage, I realize, you know what? I think I think he knows what he's doing. And um, if being a apologist for a deadbeat human rights violator um, makes me wrong, then I don't want to be right because anyone who watches the Mission Impossible films can't walk away from it without thinking like it is it's just quintessentially good like well already have to put a caveat I I do not align myself or this podcast and its affiliates are not responsible for the the likeness or the 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 content that is Mission Impossible 2 Um, And I will delve much deeper into that later in this episode. But Mission Impossible, the first one, obviously you just have to watch it just to get introduced into that world. And at least uh, understanding Ethan Hunt's psyche on a very like foundational kind of mindless level. And then you can watch Mission Impossible 2, but after you go and get a fresh lobotomy and just kind of like level out your um your dopamine levels then you re-enter mission impossible 3 and you kind of 
they're they're still trying to find their legs. I think Mission Impossible Three, who who helmed that? That was J.J. Abrams. It was also written by J.J. Abrams. I mean, he had just come fresh off of Alias, and um, and clearly, I don't vet anything too much. I just hit record and jump and and create an episode. But I. I I want to say Mission Impossible 3 was his first, um, that was his first feature film. I want to say that Cloverfield, oh no, maybe Cloverfield came out first and that was such a really good, Cloverfield was just brilliant. Um, I think Cloverfield came out first and then Mission Impossible 3 came out in 2006, but again, I'm sure you guys will dm me and let me know what were the correct dates but um jj abrams was, it was really looked at as like a franchise reboot and um on its own it's a it's very enjoyable obviously there's things to pick apart it was still an early odds film uh, it definitely barely barely survives that time um as far as like language and certain tropes in the film. But again, it's still just uh, absurd, absurd antics and problems that I really feel like Ethan Hunt creates on his own. And just, and he has to go make it right. Like we're in this mess because of you, Ethan. So um, kind of that signature uh, piece of his character is still there. And it was a really good, energetic reboot. Like, I think J.J. Abrams was still trying to find his voice, but his style and his cadence, like, it was a good pace. It was a good set for that film. And then we get to Mission Impossible 4, which I'll talk about later, which was, I personally think, was when they found their sea legs and they finally found their tone, they found their voice, and... uh I think the introduction of Jeremy Renner's character and just everything that I think Mission Impossible 3 being the transitional film that it was, how it carried into in Mission Impossible 4, I think, okay, this is, if you don't care for the first three films, I guarantee you, you'll be hooked from Mission Impossible 4 and it just, five and six are just phenomenal, like no notes. Um, I have yet to see Dead Reckoning 1, which is a number seven, because anxiety and trauma has really been on some bullshit this summer. Um, but I can't wait to see it in the comfort of my own home and also regret that I didn't see it in the theaters like I did with Top Gun Maverick. Um, but I'm already like going off of my outline and just delving into this episode, but to start off, how did I get zapped into this world? I know I always allude to this story. I just allude to this point in my life, but it really was, save for, you know, the inciting incident of my trauma of from age three to 17, and then what my life was from the inciting incident of trauma in 2000, September 2004, I was 18 then, up until um, 2013, so 2004, 2013, that's 11 years, so 29 years old, yes, so I was 29 years old, I had 
I don't want to say I survived the trauma because I think I was on autopilot um, from 2013, finding out that my fiance had an affair with of someone I considered a sister. And because we were in this religious cult and uh, for this very powerful leader in the church to um, really preserve and uh, uh, not lose her standing and not lose the capital that she had. She had a very successful micro church. She valued it at 1.5 million, but I don't think it was. But all that to say, there was a lot for her to lose in case this information came out. And, you know, me and my ex-fiance, we were two years in the making. Um, it was, even though I, I can go back and not trust my mindset and the day that I met him, I had just driven five hours from Atlanta, having been living in my car for two months and someone I knew in high school who was now part of the church because her sister was in it and this whole little community I she found out what was happening and she said just move to Florida you'll have a room to sleep in and just come so I just drove and the day that I came in there was this kind of arts festival in Ybor City and this is where the church one of the church's prior locations and I'll never forget it it was March 22nd 2012 and oh no 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 it was March 22nd 2011 yes 2011 and I make it to Florida in record time in five hours. Yes, I broke a lot of speeding laws. Um, and I went to this girl's house and she was living in this, I don't even know if they still have these things anymore, but it's like these kind of micro church communities and the micro church, like your the name and the theme behind it and the type of ministry that you want to have, like everyone lives in a big house. Um, and so I went to her house and I didn't even unpack my car. Um, she said that she's going to this event. So when I come in to get ready and just go straight to uh, the church and I think they shut down 7th Avenue in Ybor and I get there, she's showing me around, my anxiety's on 10. Um, I felt like everyone could tell that I was in this middle of this kind of uh, another cyclical trauma event. And um, my friend introduces me to this uh, person who I had met her actually seven years earlier, but we never stayed in touch. And, um, and they would always say that I was like the younger version of this person. And so she was like, oh, hi, oh my gosh, I haven't seen you in so long, yada, yada, yada. So-and-so uh, told me that you were uh, coming and so good to see you. And um, one of the things, one of the reasons why folks would always pair us together is that we both kind of had the same story. I was born in Haiti. I was trafficked to 
Boston. She was born. Um, she, what was her African, is that Senegalese, Nigerian? No, she was Sierra Leonean. Um, but she was born in, she was born in Sierra Leone. Her family migrated to London. And after her father left her mother for a white woman in London, her mom and her sister moved to uh, Boston. And so there was always, we would just like trade stories, like we would live in the same cities and didn't know each other. And then she's like, hey, oh my gosh, like, you know how we're all talking about that we're from Boston and yada, yada, yada. I want you to meet my friend who's also from Boston. And it, it feels like a movie. So I'm just standing there and there's just all this, people are talking and this event's going on. Then she goes and grabs this person, like my back's to them. She's like, hey, Sophie, I'd like you to meet so-and-so. And I turn around and I see this the most attractive man I think I've ever, um, in real life, like I've ever, no, I think I've seen attractive men before, but he was the most attractive man I think I've ever seen. Um, or I've been that close to. And I remember like immediately freezing and I just knew, I, I felt like my soul recognized this person. That sounds so gross. Um, and because I felt that strongly immediately, I remember in my brain, I said, run. Like I just, and of course, for someone who was as emotionally uh, anemic or just kind of like starved for affection and intimacy, but also because of my disorganized attachment style, I wouldn't know what to do with it if it found me. My uh, reaction to me realizing that oh, I don't know this man's name, but I'm already in love with him, I guess, um, was to run. And that kind of, and then we, re, and then as we talked, we, he said he was from Boston. He was, he lived in the same uh, neighborhood and same part of Boston that when I came from Haiti, I lived two blocks from him. I would walk by and see his house when I was from the age of three to six. And then when I was uh, age six to eight, I moved um, less than, definitely less than two miles. Um, still in the same neighborhood. And the reason why that's important is because the Catholic school I went to, the apartments, um, I think they're now condos, but the apartments I, I was in was directly across the street from this Catholic school, which was directly across next to um, the this Haitian bakery. Cause this, the town of Mattapan, Massachusetts, like um, it was known as a Haitian enclave community. A lot of Haitian uh, grocery stores, um, restaurants. It, it was just, the Haitians just basically flocked there and it would make sense because when families were settled or individuals were settled, then they'd send for their families and it just became, it was nicknamed Murder Pan, but that's a story for another time. But um, uh, basically we were always like less than a mile away from each other for huge moments of our lives or these core moments. And he lived in the same home up until he moved to, to Florida 
Um, he actually still lives there now. Um, but yeah, so it was this weird kind of sliding doors of like, we probably walked by each other and didn't know the other person existed. And now we're meeting on this date in, uh, in Tampa, Florida, the most random places of all time. And then as we started to get to know each other, like, uh, years later, or maybe a year into it, not, we weren't dating, but just a year of knowing each other, I realized that my childhood best friend was married to a guy who was the cousin of his childhood best friend. So he knew, um, he knew my friend, he knew of her husband, he went to their wedding and it was just, again, what started out as like fucking, I don't know, four degrees separation came down to one. And that's something that we, when we finally were dating two years later, we kind of talked about. And that was definitely the reason for the acceleration of why in two months we were engaged and planning a wedding and I had already <laughs> oh my god so this episode is brought to you by therapy because or trauma because I was I had the day that he asked me out I it was the day of my undergrad graduation which obviously I didn't go to I never went to any of my commencements and I got my bachelor's and um I had like psyched myself out. I talked myself out of this prestigious internship that I got. Um, I was studying, I would study for the LSATs and just be like, no, I'm too dumb. I can't get into law school. A lot of undiagnosed mental illnesses um, and trauma responses. And so right when I just, and I was like a month out of having like this severe breakdown of like um what am I gonna do and I just I have all this school debt and you know I don't know what I want to do with my life but I did know what I wanted to do but I always uh self-sabotage myself out of it and so of course the sign that the day that I um graduate it's a month into us dating there were some issues of the ch of the elders saying that you know, you're like the trauma you've gone through. You're not in a space to be in a relationship. And Lucas is a sex addict. Oh God, I just said his name. Well, I don't care. Um, he's a sex addict and he shouldn't be dating. And, uh, then he's like, fuck it. We're both adults. And do you want to be my girlfriend? And it's just a formality because God told me you're supposed to be my wife. And, uh, we went, a month into talking then dating and a month after that we're engaged and we're planning a wedding and I basically rerouted my entire identity around him I was gonna go to school and be a teacher because then when I have kids because immediately I'm gonna have kids uh, then I'll be home with them or I'll have the same schedule as them when they're in school and when it's a summertime and I have off, we'll go to Haiti. Oh, again, he's Haitian. So that's another thing that we connected off of. And we would spend the summers in Haiti where his family had property and land and a home there. 
and we were both part of the microchurch around Haitian ministry and ministering to Haiti. And uh, I went to Haiti twice with that church. Um, and in 2009 is when I went to Haiti on my own to meet my uh, gestational care carrier for the first time. And that was, Jesus Christ, where the fuck is this episode going? But anyways, back to... Uh, yeah, so basically I meet Lucas and I didn't realize it, that it was a concerted effort because this lady who had been married by then, it was, she had been married for seven years and she had an immediate attraction to him. And so she would, I didn't realize this, but he knew that I found out while we were dating that the day that he met me, he felt that same feeling that I felt and he knew that he wanted to be with me and everyone was telling him when he would ask about me, they'd be like, no, Sophie's just going through a lot and yada, yada, yada and share shit with this man that they had no business sharing. But then they would also be doing the same thing to me of like, oh yeah, Lucas, you know, he just moved here and he's just trying to like, because this man was hoeing around, that means he has, he's a sex addict. Like it was just so controlling so gross I couldn't even make this shit up even if I wanted to um but I'm also sharing way more than I actually thought I would um but all that to say so by the time that we're we finally allow ourselves to date each other it's just like you know it's just a formality for us to call each other boyfriend and girlfriend because we're soulmates and we're gonna get married and um he shared that they had been having an affair and then he broke it off. Uh, it was, it was this very seminal point of, uh, like a few months before, um, we, like he sent me an email. It was like, whew, it was this verbal diarrhea, grammatical errors and like just word vomit of how, He's in love with me. God's, you know, uh, told him that I'm the one and he thinks that I like him too and yada, yada, yada. And of course, disorganized satin style, I was like, I don't want to get in trouble. So I forwarded that email to all the elders of this Haitian ministry or the black ministry, but their subset was the Haitian ministry. And because I didn't want to get in trouble because this is how much power I just released these people Granted, I would find out in the second iteration of us dating was this man was narcissistic. He was controlling. He was a lot of bad things, but there was so much, uh, there was so much groupthink and manipulations and uh, just so much crap with this group that was obviously very traumatic and just very very dangerous. Um, that it eclipsed that. Um, so I didn't realize until much later, but this first iteration of our relationship when we were engaged, um, or when we got to be engaged, uh, four months before that happened, he, uh, sent me this email and I forwarded it to everyone else. And then I didn't hear anything of it. He later told me that they told him to stay away from me and uh he's not allowed to date me and um and then that's when he kind of turned on this person who 
the affair was this very manipulative like she was his elder like she was his like doing the pastoral care with him and she basically used uh abused her authority over his life and um he felt that he had to like she uh the boundaries were beyond blurred and he thought that you know this is like my sister and this is like my friend and I've shared things with her I've never shared with anyone but of course she's using it um for her own benefit and he found himself in that situation it's not like he willingly chose to do it and so when he uh finally realized like no I want to be with Sophie and like that's he did that and then they excommunicated him but so then he uh uh told everyone internally that this happened but I didn't know at the time until we started dating um and so when we started dating he shares everything to me and uh I want to go and tell the like elder elders of what this lady's doing and um starting to piece things together but not fully naming everything that's going on and how they've treated me um but then it gets I had these two peers that I went to high school with and they now were sisters and we were the same age and these elders are kind of like 10 years older than us so they would always say that we're like the carbon copies of these of the older generation and so one of the girls, the girl who actually told me to move to Florida, she was the sister of one of the elders who was best friends with this bitch who was having an affair with Lucas. And basically everything I was telling my two friends, they were going and telling the elders and they basically went to everyone and did a campaign of every single traumatic detail of my life up until that time I was 27 at the time they shared it basically to say if Sophie comes and starts saying that I was doing this with so-and-so then it's a lie like to discredit me and um it was it was bad it was bad 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 very very bad and so it was either so obvious and also our relationship deteriorated because he started defending this person clearly I didn't have the emotional maturity to know that that was his trauma response and his refusal to like um come out of denial of what happened to him was not okay and um and the, the people who were basically his family for these you know several years um he didn't want to lose that so it I, it looked like no, it was. He basically sacrificed caring for me and um, being there for me and like basically the core things for me of, of security and feeling emotionally safe. He chose them over me. And so we, we ended our relationship, ended the engagement, and did this life that we were building and I was now like I came from self-sabotaging and right on the cusp of that of not even dealing why I'm self-sabotaging I then make my identity to be about this person where it's fate and it's love and it's all this fucking trauma bonding bullshit so now 
to now what? Now my identity. And then now to lose the identity that I was, that I created around these people. Um, yeah. So I, gosh, this is not where I thought this episode was going to go. Um, forgive me y'all. Um, yeah, I'm like jumping around all over the place. And I did not think I was going to go this deep into the story. But anyways, um, I applied for this lay counseling program, uh, this place called the Seattle School. And I was reading a lot of literature from Dean Allender, this, psychi- this psychologist um, who, uh, I forget the name of the book that he wrote but basically it was like he walked so attachment styles and that language and that kind of classification could run um and his classification has his classifications and this was predominant it was solely around childhood sexual trauma all kinds of trauma but he really focused on sexual trauma and his classifications for women he did go on to write a book for couples and go on to write a book for men but around that time like mid-2000s it was solely around uh female uh, childhood sexual assault and his classifications were party girl good girl tough girl and honestly party girl is really disorganized attachment style Tough girl is avoidant attachment style. Good girl is, gosh, what would good girl fall under? Anxious attachment style. And party girl also would be like this uh, nebulous framing of borderline personality disorder too. And it's just, it's just a lot. Um, And tough girl and good girl would, would be different iterations of narcissistic personality disorders or narcissistic tendencies, but all that to kind of like make it make sense. But I was like deeply indoctrinated. I was holding on for dear life, trying to make sense of what had happened to me and the way that my life had imploded and the way that I threw in so much meaning making around my femininity, my identity, my culture. Um, to have been abandoned by severely abused and then abandoned by my by my biological family and then to now find this surrogate family where I can still be connected to my Haitian culture I can still be connected to peer relationships I can still be connected to familiar relationships because very soon it's like no we're your sisters and like forget your family or go like a like the things any of y'all listen to this from the ether who've been deeply deeply entrenched into religious cultish fucking relationships and when there's no there's non-existent boundaries and there's what's happening there there's like you don't know where you end and where this person begins there's this uh this divine framing and this rhetoric and these narratives around well because we have the anchor of jesus or the safety of jesus like 
I can say that I have authority over your life and I can diagnose you or I can take over these responsibilities because it's because it's Jesus. It's religion. I can do these things because it's the divine and, and it's these fucking things that you can't even they're so porous you can't even hold on to it and it's just for the sheer belief that it actually makes sense but then when you step away from it you're like holy fuck this is like this is not okay so i was really trying to overcorrect from literally giving so much power to these people um and this very like I don't even know like lack of boundaries on speed like or on meth it was so deranged it was so toxic it was so dangerous and um the literature and the words of this man were like like I replaced one addiction for now a new one and it really really was just me trying to find some sort of sense and you know anything to not because the alternative is self-harm and the alternative is darkness. Um, so I applied for a lay counselor um, certificate program where I would go to Seattle for four months out of the year, or no, four times out of the year. Um, and I would come back and implement what I've learned into now this new microchurch that I was part of called Unveiled, where I would, I went through the group twice as a participant, where we would go through this guy's literature um and workbook to unpack our childhood sexual trauma and then i was asked to be a leader and it was being having led a new cohort of women i think two times is when i applied and then i had hit some kind of very like key uh traumas and i was like get me the fuck out of here to where when I was researching the program, I realized it's a whole school and it's a graduate school. And then I realized that there's master's programs. I was like, fuck this. So on the heels of applying to the lay counselor program, I applied to the master's program in counseling psychology. And I got a call from someone saying, well, you can't go through the counselor the lay counselor certificate program and also apply to a master's program you're gonna have to choose which one do you want and so being that my um love language was flight I was like oh I'm gonna commit so hard and I'm going to move 3,000 miles away and if I get accepted and I'm gonna apply to the master's program which obviously I did get accepted I think my personal statement paper was how Beyonce's Lemonade how it was um the significance of it to black women um and i got accepted i did an estate sale basically everything i owned folks would always comment on my style and things and i just sold all that and took those 300 dollars and <laughs> i think one suitcase and june 16 2014 i moved to seattle and then five months later, I realized, ironically, while I'm in practicum, because you go through practicum all the three years that you're in this program. And so in practicum, I'm realizing, oh, there's this habit of mine of running when things get hard or running to avoid facing things. And uh, I realize I need to stop running away from my problems. And moving to Seattle was a trauma response. And 
what does that mean? It still took me two months to finally actually move back when I realized that. So that really, really lengthy, I took the whole, oh my God, I took the space of this episode to really talk about something I did not expect to talk about. But basically that's where my mindset was. I moved back to Tampa, December, 2014. Fuck, it's not even six months, it's less than six months. And, uh, that's the mindset I am. I have no money. If anything, I'm in beyond school debt. I'm in like debt, debt. I can only afford to rent a room from the lady, uh, who started the, uh, micro church where Dan Allender's literature was what we used and it was out of her home. So I, it was, I, I didn't have a job, I didn't have any money. So it's like, okay, you'll be a leader. You'll go back to leading and you can stay in our house rent-free until you have a job and then you can pay um, this kind of discounted rate. Um, and I became a substitute teacher, which then led me to getting asked back full-time. And I got my first salary job for the 2004. 15, 2016 school year and then I went to USF for grad school in January 2017 thinking I'm just going to get a master's in education to kind of leverage that capital to get a higher paying teaching job and two semesters and I'm like this is not what I want to do why am I doing this? And there are a lot of things that I was like really peeling back of like the environment that I was in with this lady. Um, and just realizing like, she's just a different, more passive aggressive extension of the organism that was that church. And, um, when I decided to change my major to sociology and I started to really speak back to who I was, when I was getting my bachelor's and the dreams I had and realizing and had done enough work by then it was what, um, I graduated in 2013. So that was four years from getting my bachelor's of realizing like all the ways I was self-sabotaged and, um, these dreams and ideas that I had. And I was really like, I was really good at sociopolitics and, and pop culture and all these things. And like, um, I remember that this lady told me that there's honor in living a quiet life, basically in saying like, don't ch change your major, become a teacher, live in this podunk town of Dover, Florida, and working up to like having a small life of, you know, in the country and Fox News, KKK, Florida is like the dream. Um, like basically someone intellectualizing mediocrity to you when they wouldn't even want that for their own kids because because I don't know if you trauma victims know that you should be happy to just have anyone's attention or you should just be happy to be existing so don't shoot for the stars you, you should be okay with scraps Whew. What am, what is going on Anyways, um, so, yeah, so that's the mind, that's the headspace I was in when I found 
the lobotomy of choice that would go on to be like my new favorite thing, which was the Mission Impossible franchise. So I, so this, this family, they rented from Redbox Mission Impossible 4. And they had this thing to where I couldn't stay in my room because if you're staying in your room, that means you're being antisocial. If you're being antisocial, that means you're getting ready to like end your life and alive yourself. <sighs> yeah, I have a whole bunch of years of therapy based on them too. But um, so this one weekend they rented a movie and I was like, okay, I'm going to watch this movie unironically. And, and Mission Impossible 4 was really fucking good. And so from there, I was like, you know, I've never really been into these. I knew they existed. I've never seen a Mission Impossible movie before, and I didn't realize they were that good. Let me go and see what streaming site has the other ones. And that's when I realized that Mission Impossible 5 was coming out later, I think summer 2015. And so that's why Mission Impossible 4 was on Redbox. And I think HBO had the the, the first three. And so I watched the first three, and then Mission Impossible 5 came out, and I bought a ticket. <laughs> I bought a ticket inside the theaters. Um, but that's what led me to Mission Possible. And like, given how much Tom Cruise was just like a fixture in the late 90s, early aughts, and he, I mean, even in the early aughts, he was being regarded as like the last original action star because of how he committed and by Mission Impossible 5 this man his divorce with um Mission Impossible 3 was the him and Tom uh, Katie Holmes era um Mission Impossible 4 um he married her a year later and then Mission Impossible 5 he had um, divorced, I believe, six months after the film came out. Um, so yeah, I knew peripherally, like, you know, things going on in his life and just the gossip sites of people who would roast him, but also need him for clickbait. It was just weird, just kind of like voyeuristically being aware of his presence. Um, and I think there are Tom Cruise films I had accidentally stumbled on, like roommates I had in 2004, 2008, they watched Eyes Wide Shut. And I think it's because they were trying to have this like Showtime softcore porn kind of thing. And then they just were like, oh, like we're so pretentious. And here's this like, I don't even know if it's an indie film, but here's a film that not a lot of black people are clamoring to go see let alone black West Indian girls like us in our late teens um and I watched it and it was the worst movie I'd ever seen so the Mission Impossible franchise were surprisingly like having no expectations I was very surprised at how much I enjoyed it then I watched Mission Impossible 1, 2, 3 and then when I saw Mission Impossible 5 I was like oh damn, I can't like deny this. Like I actually like this, this franchise. And, um, I mean, I understand the cultural significance of Tom Cruise and just how people, regardless of his affiliations, um, with church Scientology and that whole human rights fucking juggernaut, like 
there are these actors who've been in these films with him that were leveraging like proximity to him to jumpstart their own careers. And it's just really this interesting, the negotiations that people make, like, yeah, like, I know that, that he's aligning himself with things that are not cool, but I kind of need this cultural capital to get to where I want to be. Um, fucking Anthony Hopkins was in Mission Possible too. Why, sir? Didn't he already win his Academy Award by then? Or maybe he won his Academy Award years later, but Anthony Hopkins, fucking Mission Impossible 1, had John Voight and um, Henry Cizerny, who was the, like, crazy guy in Revenge. Um, actually, I don't know what other things that man's done. Fucking Emilio Estevez had, like, two lines in Mission Impossible. Like, people, like, would risk one scene. Fucking Carrie Russell, she was in Mission Impossible 3. She was only in the like prologue not even act one and it's like you literally took a job like probably six hours on set just to be just to rub shoulders with this like the number one action star at that time before the rock just kind of came and fucking uh, monopolized everything just to like use that on your your resume it's just so interesting um of just kind of those interplays of it but um I, I really do I think his commitment to the stunts and it's really interesting that in by Mission Impossible 5 like that was towards the end of his and Katie Holmes's relationship like I think honestly he went even he would always push the envelope because he needed something to distract him from his life choices of what Scientology had cost him and just kind of like hey I sold my soul to this Miss Cabbage guy and maybe I helped him bury Shelley's body um regardless of the things that it's taken from me like I'm not gonna deal with it and I'm going to commit to doing these as much of these stunts as I can you know, with the limits of insurance and, you know, devote all this time to not, you know, t seeing my children. Like this man, I saw an article like several months ago that this guy said that he's going to be making these films well into his 80s. That is not someone who is well. But again, if his unwell, warped, view of 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 society and life is what equates cinematic gold then who am, who am i to keep him from his calling who who you know i i can't as the former cult going religious zealot that i i was like i can't deny him his purpose i can't um will katie holmes and surrey holmes be in um, or Surrey Cruz being therapy for the rest of their natural lives like I will be? Yes. But is it a fair trade? I think the jury's still out on that. But I think you might know where I'm leaning. Um, but another thing too, like, this is a billion dollar franchise before the magnitude of that that Marvel Cinematic Universe kind of created was a thing. Like, by the time... Uh, 
Marvel's Avengers kind of became this fixture of, oh, we're making billions of dollars um, in the whole total run of our, um, of a film. And that was like by 2012. That's when the first Avengers film came out. And I think that was the first film to gross a billion dollars for the MCU and um, Age of Ultron was that so Avengers was 2012 and I think Avengers Age of Ultron was 2015 but by then Mission Impossible 96 budget 80 million gross 457 million Mission Impossible 2 budget 125 million gross 546 million already at a billion mission impossible 3 came out 2006 150 million budget 398 million um and i think honestly because of the catastrophe that was mission impossible 2 i don't think people were clamoring to go see mission impossible 3 2011 mission impossible 4 budget 145 million gross 694 million dollars 2015 mission impossible 5 which is, I think Mission Impossible 5 and 6 are neck and neck of, of, of like being the best. But I honestly think 5 maybe edges out 6. I really like 6 though. So maybe they're still tied. But Mission Impossible 4 I think is the best out of all of them. Um, so 2015, Mission Impossible 5, 150 million budget. 682 million gross mission impossible six no mission impossible six is the best 2018 1.78 million budget 791 million dollar gross global box office and i honestly think um so the directors, you have Brian De Palma for Mission Impossible. You have John Woo for Mission Impossible 2, who was on a coked out cocktail of Matrix, the inspiration of the Matrix movies and whatever Nicolas Cage films that had a bunch of pigeons in it because the absurdity of Mission Impossible 2 is laughable at best and like wellness checking inducing at worst like if you sit through that and you finish it and you're intact like you would call 911 on yourself because you're not questioning how why what led me to make this decision like it is it is it is absurd like i can't even find another word for it and it would honestly take me 24 hours to just simply talk about how ridiculous and how did they it went through screenwriting it went through uh uh fucking table reads it went through production it went it went through rehearsals it went through the hands of so many people then it went through the director and then the director of photography had to co-sign what the director was saying and the notes and everyone looked at that and they were okay with the final product like it is like I can't there is this if you all saw my Instagram stories there is this scene this that doesn't make any sense of the first kind of explicit love interest of Ethan Hunt in the 
name of in the guise of Naya Wallace, played by Tani Newton, she he, he has the IMF recruits or tells Tom Cruise his next mission is to stop this a potential biological terrorist attack, um, a biological um, weapon terrorist attack, and the woman that he has to recruit or turn kind of being an operative um because there she's a thief and so in exchange for helping me take down your ex terrorist you have to go play make nice and spy on us feed me intel then we'll clear your um your fucking warrants with interpol and and all that and just this scene of her getting back into the good graces of her crazy ex played by Doug Ray Scott and she he bails her out of of jail of this fake crime that they set up for him to like for her to be the damsel in distress in distress and she's walking up to him and it's this unnecessary slow-mo even more necessary are the Beyonce fans that are making the the, the shot more dramatic and then her scarf flies off of her. Her silk scarf flies off of her. And then <laughs> Doug Gray Scott does not break eye contact with Tandy New. And then he grabs the scarf, is in this like, I, you're, you're, I find you so irresistible and you're so stunning that I couldn't uh, take my eyes off of you. But I'm so cool because I can catch your scarf but maintain eye contact at the same time. And it is. It is a crime against humanity. Like, if Interpol should be called, it should be called against that scene direction and the fact that it went through editing and it ended up on screens and later DVDs and later Blu-rays and later streaming apps. Like, I, I, I am, I have a personal, personal uh, gripe against John Woo. And I think that's why it probably took five years for the next um, no, it took six years between Mission Impossible 2 to Mission Impossible 3, and, um, it, it was, Mission Impossible 2 was so, 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 so bad, but I don't want to say anything too much, because I really want you guys to go in green, like, to take in the absurdity that is that movie, um, and it, it's interesting, another, I think the last thing I'll say of beyond the cultural significance, the, beyond the reason why I do believe that Tom Cruise will be making these films into his 80s and I'll be right there with my jazzy scooter, um, you know, holding my AMC Stubbs reward uh, card to sign me in because I'm seeing it in Dolby and I'm seeing it on opening nights. Um, are the careers of these directors like, John Woo, did John Woo do Brokeback Mountain? Let me Google and see. Because I feel like they took a gamble with John Woo because he was the only actor of color behind the helm of this franchise. And so like Hollywood loves to do, like you should be lucky to be invited but if you fuck up in any way, you'll never be asked again. Let me see. John Woo, filmmaker. What did he go on to do? Oh my God, John Woo did face off. No wonder all those pigeon shots. Holy shit. I did not even know that. 
did well he did a lot of movies with what's that guy's name the other crazy the other crazy uh scientologist and adele dazim what the fuck's his name john travolta wow i did forgot john travolta's name he did face off in 97 so of course three years later he would do all those explosions and pigeon shots and absurdity that's in mission impossible 2. who the fuck did brokeback mountain ang lee i thought john woo did brokeback mountain because that would have been his re-entry into okay hollywood taking him seriously again but nope that was ang lee but anyways um you have jj abrams who directed um mission possible three brad bird did mission possible four jj abrams produced i believe christopher McQuarrie, who took over for mission possible five and six did top gun maverick did valkyrie he did oh my god what else did he do he did another movie that i was surprised that he did that i was like okay christopher mccrory has been in his fucking bag um where is it? Where is it? Google, don't let me down. And if I can spell Christopher McQuarrie. Okay. This man, his he did Jack Reacher, which tangent, Jack Reacher was absurdly entertaining. He stood for everything about masculinity and uh, Fox News rhetoric that I don't align myself with. But hey, a good time is a good time is a good time. He won an Oscar? What did he win an Oscar for? For Best Original Screenplay? What the fuck? Christopher McQuarrie Oscar. What did he win that? Oh my God. He won it for The Usual Suspects. That's the one that I, um, that I was like blown away that he did. Um, but there was also another one that he did that I was like, uh, was it? Come on, come on, come on. Had the usual suspects. I was shocked that he did that. He did both Jack Reacher films. He did Edge of Tomorrow, which I loved with Emily Blunt. Valkyrie, which was an Oscar bait fail. He did The Tourist. He did The Mummy. That was another fail. But he obviously made up for that for the remaining Mission Impossibles and Top Gun. Like the speed in which Top Gun Maverick made its way to a billion in the age of post-COVID where no one's going to the movies and it was the first film to do so. I mean, fucking Marvel films came out post-COVID and it hasn't hasn't been able to make a billion dollars in the speed that it did prior to um, COVID. But, um, but yeah, the Christopher McQuarrie and uh, Tom Cruise romance like keep it coming um i'm sorry to the mental health statuses of tom cruise's children but if him not acknowledging you is what gives us this art then 
I think you'd be a little selfish to, to deny us that. Um, so that's my love of Mission Impossible. Like I, I think I'd need to do, I had plans here in my outline to talk about Top Gun Maverick, but all I'll say is that I watched it and I kid you not. And again, was my mental health hanging by a moment like that Lifehouse early odds song? Yes. Did I just start, did my psychiatrist just put me on Wellbutrin and we were trying to figure out the right dosage for my cocktail? Yes. But did I watch Top Gun Maverick sob in the fourth act and while the edits came on and Lady Gaga is accosting me with her aggressive, like, no need necessary for that song that did not even that even connect with the movie she was trying to pull a berlin take my breath away but it's just like you are not that girl like this is not the 80s like there's no need for this like aggressive ballad but was i still sobbing and did i like press the restart button so fast and sit through it again Back to back, I can't remember the last film I ever did that for. Oh no, I do. It was The Gray Man. But Joe Russo, the Russo brothers are really good action writers and directors too. Um, but yeah, am I seeing the theme with my love for Tom Cruise being a very, very diminished capacity? Yes. But do I care? No. Should you care? No. Just go watch the movies they're really really good um i had a blast re-watching it for research purposes obviously to uh remember why i watched the films and um obviously this is the more comedic take of my love for the franchise and tomorrow in the unpaid emotional labor intellectual vertical i have a special piece that i wrote last week um of the more serious side of it but um Hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you for the grace of allowing me to take a week off. It's been a pretty rough season, but I think Elevated Garbage and uh, my discourse with y'all and obsessing over the our love of mutual garbage has really um, been a safe house, a haven, a warming salve. I don't know what to say. It's 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 been so. Um, it's kept me going and I apologize for <laughs> I apologize for the therapy session that was the first 30 minutes of this episode um but as usual I love you I'm only happy when it rains feel good when things are gone.